0: We have several visitors with us this morning, and first thing, I want to welcome you uh, to our services and hope that when we're done here today that you'll be able to leave here saying it's been good for you to be here. Uh, I do want to explain that I'm not the one who would usually be occupying the pulpit at this point. Our our, uh, preacher, Jacob Holman, is away in Mississippi, I believe, uh, in a gospel meeting. And so they're benefiting from his uh, presence this morning, and and I'm just very thankful to be able to uh, share with you a a portion of God's Word um, in his absence. Did you hear the report this week that it is is estimated that by 2050 uh, that Christianity, and I mean that in the broadest sense possible, uh, Christianity will be a minority religion in the United States. And that's getting a lot of airplay right now. People are saying a lot of a lot of things about that. Um, I'll tell you that my own personal perspective on why that might be the case. I, I think that it, it goes back to, you know, the social gospel, um, and the entertainment gospel, and the gospel of health and wealth. These things have just not been providing people with. The, the spiritual nourishment that they need. And so we are heading in the direction that we're heading. Um, and who knows what the next few decades will hold. Hopefully there might be a turnaround, but we just don't know, do we? Now that coupled with the, the reality that we are also living in, in, in an increasingly secular society. Secular materialism—the idea that you know the only things that are important are those things that you can see with your eyes and 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 touch with your hands. Um, scientism, which you know, I'm I'm a I'm a scientist. I'm a clinical laboratory scientist. That's what I am by training, uh, and so I I understand the scientific myth, method, and I I really think that the scientific method is a good thing. But scientism is something different. That's basically where. The only ideas that are with, worth knowing are those that can be proven by science. And that's taking it too far. And the, the, the reality is, is that these prophecies, are pre- these uh, philosophies, I should say, are prevailing in, in our society, in our entertainment, in our media, uh, in our schools, in our universities, and even in some areas of religion. It's all about the things that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands. But we are people of faith. We are people that are brought here together because we believe in something. And it's not something that can be touched with the hands or seen with the eyes. So the truth of Jesus' resurrection will never be validated scientifically if we 're people of faith, what do we need to do if we 're going to continue to live in a society such as this? What kind of faith is necessary in order for us to survive spiritually well that 's what I want to talk about in our study this morning and if you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter eleven, Don read a few ver- few of the verses that we 're going to be looking at. Of course, Hebrews chapter eleven, most of you already know that that is the hall of, of fame of faith in the New Testament, so many different great examples of faith that we can go to, examples of faith that are thousands of years old, but they continue to exhibit the kind of faith that we need today. So let's begin reading at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Spend a lot of time digging into, you know, the, the grammar and the meaning of the words and things like that. But let me just put it this way What I think the point of the author is is that the things that we hope for are not physical, they're not material, they cannot be touched with the hands or seen with the eyes. But faith gives us the assurance that these things, nonetheless, are real. By faith, we have the conviction that there are things that exist, even though we can't see them with our eyes, they are still real. And they may exist in an unseen reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. And these things may call to us from that realm to, to, to tell us things that are very important to our lives and we pay attention to them and paying attention to them as a result then, as we studied at nine o'clock this morning, we live happier, more contented, more fulfilling lives. There are two types of people in the world and I want to illustrate the first type of, of person. And that is that is the man, the disciple of Jesus who is usually referred to as Doubting Thomas. You remember the story, John chapter 20, and Jesus has risen from the dead, and and Jesus' other disciples have, have seen him risen from the dead, and they are telling Thomas about it. But what does Thomas say? He says, unless I see it with my eyes, unless I can put my hand into the print of the nails, I will not believe it. And the reality is that we live in today is that so many people in our society are just like Thomas. They say, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see it with my own eyes. Unless something can be proven scientifically, then it's not real. If it can't be observed or testable or reproducible or falsifiable, which are all of the tenets of, of science, if it doesn't meet those those criteria, then it's not worth spending your time uh, thinking about. But do you remember what Jesus says to Thomas? At the very end of the chapter, his last statement, blessed are those who having not seen yet believe. And that's us. No, I haven't seen Jesus risen from the dead, but I have accepted the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. I have accepted all of the rest of the evidences that exist, the uh, the abundant evidences that exist, that the proposition that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for me, that He rose again, and He's now sitting at the right hand of God, that all of that is true. The faith that we need to have today, the faith that will enable us to survive spiritually in this secular age, is first of all, faith that enables us to see the unseen. Remember Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So we believe we not only have eyes in our heads, we also have an eye, the eyes of our hearts as well. And Paul is, is, is praying for us that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we can see the reality of, of the richness of the things that God has given us in Christ. We believe that there is a realm of perception and cognition where we can come to reasonable conclusions about things that exist, even though we can't see them. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to continue now. I want to go back and I I want to read verse 1 again, but we're going to continue down to verse 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. For by faith, we understand that the, re- the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's turn that around. Let's look at it a different way. Everything that we can see with our eyes was made by things that we can't see with our eyes. To highlight again the nature of the society that we live in, you know you can't teach that in in school, right? You can't teach that everything that we can see with our eyes was made by things that we can't see with our eyes. In our schools today, the only causes that can be given consideration when discussing the beginning of the universe are things that can be seen with the eyes, things that can be demonstrated scientifically. But here's the irony. Science says that matter cannot be created or destroyed. That's the first law of thermodynamics, right? But here we are, and science has no no answer to that. And and if you've dug in it, dug into this, and maybe you've read some of the things that Stephen Hawking has read written about, and some of the, I don't care, quantum foam doesn't make you. Know, it was already here. They're trying to. Things pop out of non-existence based upon things that already exist. So I won't get into, any, into that any deeper, but as, as far as any proposal that's being made right now, they're all beginning with stuff, and you can't begin with stuff. Here's the point. <clears throat> if we're going to survive spiritually in this age, we have to have a faith that enables us to see the unseen, and this leads us to our next point, verse, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The most important thing about the unseen is God. Things that are seen are made by those things that are unseen. And the unseen thing that made everything is God. God is, is hidden. We, we don't perceive him with the senses. God doesn't make his presence you know, known by opening up the heavens and displaying himself visibly so that people can look up and see. That's just not the way it works. Now, we might ask the question, why does God do that? Why is it that God is hidden from our senses? And the answer is simply, he wants us to come to him by faith, that which, is not, that which is seen is not faith. If you have your Bibles, keep them at Hebrews 11 because we're going to co- be coming back there. But go with me to Acts chapter 17. Now this is Paul's sermon to the, to the uh, people of Athens on Mars Hill where he is explaining to them the unknown God. But it's the way that he explains to them the unknown God that I w- really want to draw your attention to. Verse 26 of Acts 17, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, look at verse 27, that they should seek God and that perhaps they might feel their way toward him and find him. Paul goes on to say, yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own prophets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. But what Paul is saying here is, is that, God, yes, God created everything, that he's put mankind in the world, and that he has managed history so that, so that nations would rise and fall. Ultimately, God has done all of this so that we should seek him. And I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version, which says that we might feel our way toward him. But I like the New King James and the Old King James that uses the term grope. You know, I, I think it's probably not used in the more tr- more modern translations because some of the connotation that that word has today. But but I, I, I know what it means to grope in the darkness. You know, when when you get up in the middle of the night and and You don't want to wake your spouse up, so you're trying to go downstairs and do whatever it is that you need to do, but you don't want to turn on any lights, and so you pass by, you know, the door, and you might bump your shin in it, and and you feel your way down the stairs, and you get wherever you're trying to go. That's what it means to grope for something. And what Paul is saying here in this text is that God wants us to grope for Him, to find Him in the darkness. God doesn't just make himself known to everyone. He, he, doesn't, uh, he, just, uh, he doesn't just make his existence and his involvement in world affairs obvious, but instead we have to seek him. And to, sometimes we have to seek him in the darkest moments of our lives. Sometimes we have to seek him in the darkness of, of pain and discomfort. Sometimes we have to seek Him whenever we don't know what the future holds for us. You know, David talks in, in, in the Psalms 23, he talks about, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to find God. So the kind of faith that we need today, the kind of faith that, that is going to help us survive spiritually in our age, is the faith that creates within us the desire to conduct a diligent search for God. Now let's pause here and just reflect a moment on the consequences of what we're talking about here. You know, I I think we all would understand and agree that there are many people in our society who believe that God exists. and, And they worship Him on some level, whatever that might be for them. But they think that because God exists, then, then that means that God is going to make everything in their life great. That they're never going to have any problems. And, and if anything bad happen, does happen in their lives, then they're just sort of thrown into a downward spiral. But, and, and who knows, they might get to such a point in their lives where they're asking the question, where is God in all of this? And in reality, they never had the kind of faith that God is looking for in his people. God comes to us from the unseen and sometimes diligently seeking him means that we are seeking him through the deepest, darkest days of our lives. Sometimes people have to seek God through period of terrible periods of trial and tribulation. All right, back to Hebrews chapter 11. This, now we're going to, to, to start at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. In the example of Abraham, he had to seek for God in the darkness of a foreign land. And I think in Abraham, we see an archetype of the kind of faith that we need to have, that God, God would have us to have. And in verse 8, God gives him the command to leave his home. And he left, first of all, he left Ur, which was sort of like leaving New York City to come to you know some rural place in Arkansas. Um, he eventually left his father's house in Haran, And the most important part of verse 8 is that he went out not knowing where he was going. So the faith that we need to have today is the kind of faith that would cause us to be willing to go out not knowing where we're going. And I want to emphasize here, I'm not talking about blind faith. Sometimes when you're talking to skeptics, they define faith as nothing other than blind faith. But really, it, it it go it goes beyond that. And to, just to illustrate what I'm talking about, um, a couple of months ago, uh, I was out for a morning run, pleasant morning for July, um, actually. Uh, and if you're at all familiar with Conway and you know where the Wooster Hill is, I was I was running up and down the Wooster Hill, and as I approached. Uh, a side street that that came uh, up to the the road that I was running on, a a, a huge dump truck, probably one of those 12 yard jobs, uh, comes and of course I get out of his way, right? I'm going to let him, you know, go go first, but because I'm running and I'm trying to keep my heart rate up, I thought, well, I'll just I'll just go behind the truck and cross the road and be on my way. So I headed out not knowing where I was going. <laughs> I, I could not see what was the, on the other side of that truck. I couldn't see what, what I was going to see once I got to the, you know, beyond the backside of the truck. But once I got beyond the backside of the truck, I was almost hit by a big black pickup truck. In fact, I, the thing came to a rest. It came to a stop about right there, right? If two more feet, and I probably would have been in the hospital. And, and um, I'm pretty sure that when, when I came to my senses, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that the driver of the truck was looking at me thinking, I almost killed Tim Copeland. And, and the reason it makes me think that is because when I came to my senses, I looked into the cab of the truck and I said, I was almost killed by Richard Barnes. <laughs> I'm glad he's not here today. I might not have another opportunity to preach here. <laughs> but we, we talked to each other. We, we laughed a little bit. We laughed. But it, as I was thinking about these things, I thought, that's the perfect example. When we have evidence, we need to use it. We need to head out as much as possible. We need to head out when we, where we know where we were going. But that particular time, I headed out where, where, where I didn't know where I was going. Well, so, there are times, though, when when we do have to head out, not knowing where we're going, and, and I want to give you an example of that too. <clears throat> Maybe you've heard of the speed of light problem. You know, the speed of light is somewhere around one hundred eighty-six thousand miles per second, which means that in a year, light travels about five point nine trillion miles. Now, I don't know if you're seeing these images that are coming into us from the new James Webb telescope where you're you're seeing fields of galaxies that are out there, literally thousands, if not millions, who knows how many there are that are actually out there. And, And most of those are millions and billions of light years away. And really the most logical conclusion that we can come to is that is the, it took the light that is leaving those galaxies and coming from th- there to here must have taken millions and billions of years to get here. That's the simplest explanation. Now, I will tell you that there are godly scientists who have worked out solutions for how the earth could only be a few thousand years old and the light still get from there to here. And the solutions are, are out there. There are multiple solutions. But here's the point. I can't understand any of them. If I were to start today, it would probably take, I'd probably have to get a physics degree in order to understand exactly what those really, really smart guys are talking about, trying to explain how the light could get from there to here in just a few thousand years, a few, few thousand years consistent with what the Bible says about the age of the earth but I don't need to know that for myself. I can think about all of the other evidence that is available, the abundant evidence that what the Bible has to say about the world is true and about the the things, the bedrocks, the foundation of our faith, all of the evidence that is available, and I really don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time thinking about those other things. Now, <clears throat> Here's the point. There are so many evidences that point to the idea that the Bible is right about so many things. Nonetheless, sometimes we have to go out not knowing where we're going. Sometimes we have there's we studying the word of God and we come across something maybe that we've never read before. And by reading it at its, at its very basic sense, we come to the conclusion, I need to change my life. And that's not easy to do, right? But we do it because we, th- we know that the Bible says it. And so we go out not knowing where we're going. I have found that as my faith has matured, there's a lot less about the world and about reality that is certain. There was a time when the world fit together for me in this nice little neat package. It all made sense and I had a a very high level of certainty certainty about all these things. But as I've grown more aware of things, that, that level of certainty has decreased. But that's okay. It has not affected my faith because walking by faith And not by sight is what we do as Christians. There's more to learn from Abraham. Look at verse 9. By faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So Abraham was able to dwell in the land of God, the land that God had promised him, but he never was able to take ownership of it. In all of this life, this great archetype of what God of you know, Abraham that God has set before us, it teaches us that the best promises of God are not going to be fulfilled in this life. But we shouldn't feel bad for Abraham. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It wasn't even the land of Canaan that Abraham was really looking forward to. Instead, it was a better city, a city with foundations. Verse 13, speaking of all the patriarchs, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar, and having acknowledged them that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. And then verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Sometimes we are called to go out into a place where we don't know. But what we always need to keep in front of us is our expectation that God is creating something better for us. As Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 2, For in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's why I think it's really important that we, that we have a clear expectation of the promises that God has made us. That we just don't have this vague idea that we hear in the media and everywhere else about you know, heaven and, and disembodied spirits floating around in, in some kind of ethereal existence. We need to understand what the Bible reveals about the promises that God has made for us. 1 Corinthians 15, about the glorious body that we will have raised. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, about the the new heavens and the new earth. This this place that that Jesus says is being prepared for us. We need our faith if we're going to survive in this day and age. Our faith needs to lead us to understand there's something better for us. Now, the last point that I want to make is is really flowing on from this. You you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, I hear everything that you're saying about these promises, but people die. And, you know, in the first century, it was a real problem that, that people were concerned because they saw their loved ones dying and they thought, well, what about them? Are, are they going to, you know, enjoy the promises along with us? Is, if, if they died, is there going to be, you know, are they going to miss out? And we may not think that way, but in the first century, that's, what, that's the way they thought. But again, Abraham has this really interesting perspective on faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, we'll just stop right there, mid-sentence, but that's okay. This takes faith to a whole nother level. You remember the story. God calls Abraham to go out to Isaac to offer him on Mount Moriah. Uh, and and we, ought to, we ought to see in all of this a, a foreshadowing of the redemption that God would offer through Christ. It goes on to say in verse 17, And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So the first thing that we have to get past here is the fact that God appears to be asking of Abraham a human sacrifice. And everything else that we know of from the Old Testament says that God abhors human sacrifices. That's one of the main reasons why uh, the, the people of Israel would be given the, the, the authorization to take the land of Canaan because the peoples that were there were offering human sacrifices. But God also, you know, he's asking Abraham for, for this, for, for, uh, to, to offer up his son. But, but remember that, that Isaac is also the son of promise. So it's not just, you know, offering up your son, that'd be bad enough, but, but, I, but God's made all these promises to Abraham about what's going to happen when Isaac grows up and has children and it becomes a nation, and, and so the, all of this has to be rolling around in Abraham's head. So how do you think Abraham reconciles all of this? Again, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. How is Abraham going to reconcile God's promise? Abraham is the one through whom the seed will come, and now go out and kill uh, Isaac. I'm not sure I said that right, but you know what I said. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, which figuratively speaking, He did receive him back. So here's what Abraham was thinking. As he's up on that mountain, and and they have the altar there built, and, and Isaac obviously has finally figured out what Abraham has really been commanded to do because he's lying there on the altar, and Abraham is about... The thing that Abraham is thinking, yes, I'm going to sacrifice my son. Yes, I'm going to kill him, but I know that God will raise him from the dead. That's what's going on in in Abraham's mind. That's the only way that he can reconcile what God has commanded him to do. And so this points to another very important thing for us to learn about the kind of faith that God would have us to have. And that is the conviction that God will raise the dead. Now again, we, we live in a secular society. And their perspective on resurrection is it just doesn't happen. You you, you can go out into the cemeteries and and nobody has ever been raised from the dead. It just doesn't happen. And so if it doesn't happen today, then it's never happened. But again, we are people by faith. And just like Abraham, when when we hear that God has promised us a glorious body, and a new heavens and a new earth, then the first thing that our faith ought to lead us to conclude is, well, that means that God is going to raise us up from the dead. And if we're going to have the kind of faith that we need to have today in the secular age in which we live, we need to, we need to have faith that, that causes us to believe that God can raise the dead and that He has promised to do so. Well, that's our study for this morning, and I think again you'll you'll agree with me that we face some challenges. Now, I, I'm not going to say that our challenges are worse than any other generation of Christians. Our our challenges may be unique in a certain way, and we face. But nonetheless, we face those challenges. But if if we're going to have faith that survives, then five very important aspects, five very important criteria. We need to have the ability to see the unseen. We need to have the willingness to seek an unseen God. When called, we must be willing to go out sometimes not knowing where we're going. We must understand that this world and this life is not all that there is. And finally, we must believe that God has raised the dead because he has promised that he will do so. We're going to close with the uh, singing of a song that has been selected to encourage any who might be here and have never rendered obedience to the gospel of Christ. What we've really talked about this morning is the foundation of the Christian faith. And if you're here this morning and if you have this kind of faith, then you need to act upon that faith. Come to Christ in obedience to His gospel. Repent of your sins. Confess His name before men. And put Him on in baptism. As the invitation is extended, if you're here and subject to it, come forward while together we stand and sing.